Welcome to Thinking and Drinking. This is Shelby, and in episode two, I'll continue my thoughts about moving the humanities into a digital space. Before we dive in, a quick production note. If you notice any difference in audio quality, it's because I'm using a different setup to record tonight's episode than I did last week. The power supply in my main computer died a warrior's death, and I must make do while I wait for a replacement part to arrive. Now, on to our topic. Last week I expressed some disdain about the slowness on behalf of parts of the academy to adopt multimodal means of study into their curricula. Multimodal referring to videos, music, the internet, anything beyond the traditional lecture and textbook methods of study. It's something that I've been ruminating over ever since I began the final part of my undergraduate degree in 2016. With the information sharing technology available to us nowadays, why are we not using it more in collegiate environments? The wonderful thing about digital information is that it allows scholars to access artifacts, situations, and scenarios which would otherwise be out of their reach for myriad reasons. The first thing that comes to mind is my chemistry class in my sophomore year of high school, when our instructor showed us a video of the increasing volatility of elements in the first column of the periodic table when exposed to water. Suffice to say, there's a reason that potassium is stored in oil. Our instructor showed us the video not only because of the teenage fascination with things that explode, but also because these experiments shown on the video would have been too dangerous for him to recreate in a classroom environment. This was in a high school in rural Washington State back in the early aughts, by the way. So, if multimodal media can help with science studies, what about the humanities? I was a translator in the military in my prior life. During my language training, we'd find soap operas in whatever language we were studying, and we'd watch them during our lunch breaks because the stories were entertaining and over-the-top, and we'd also become more familiar with slang and speech patterns. Internet radio was helpful, too, especially during the three- and four-hour homework sessions, for much the same reasons. Also, Croatian dance pop is catchy AF, and you can't convince me otherwise. During my later work as a remedial language trainer, I draw on these same materials when developing lesson plans for my students. Depending on the individual student's proficiency level, I'd even assign a target language movie for them to watch and analyze. My alma mater, the Defense Language Institute, made my job a a hell of a lot easier when they rolled out a nifty language study website called GLOSS, an interactive archive that incorporates text, audio, and video selections for a whopping 42 languages. With all of these resources at my disposal, it was easy to tailor a learning plan that would be beneficial for my students. So why don't we see more of this in the modern collegiate humanities atmosphere? If I had to form a theory, I'd say that it has a lot to do with the concept of scholarly ego. It's a lot harder to control access to information in digital formats unless you put it behind something like a paywall. And while we're on the subject of paywalls, a brief digression, what the actual hell? Having scholarly work behind a paywall benefits the authors and the general scholarly community about as much as a filing cabinet on the bottom of the Marianas Trench. 
It might be a nice bragging point, but it's not really practical. And then, what's the point? Circling back to my earlier idea, it has a lot to do with ego. Among its many institutional issues, the humanities part of the academy has problems with sharing information, with collaboration, and with bringing in outside ideas. None of this makes any sense to me at all, both as a communication scholar and as former military. In my prior line of work, there was no shame in collaborating with other experts in your field. Indeed, it was required due to the potential impact of your work. When lives are on the line, you don't want your ego to get in the way. While the academic study of the humanities is rarely a matter of life and death, the matter remains that scholars in these fields are tasked with the preservation and the interpretation of human culture and its manifold facets. With that kind of a burden on your shoulders, wouldn't you want to use all of the tools at your disposal to get it right so that those who come after you have a better, clearer picture of who we were at this point in time? I'm not suggesting that we abandon textbooks and lectures entirely, but it wouldn't hurt to bring modern media into the humanities classroom, if, for nothing else, to take into account how composition as a field is very much alive and evolving. That's all I've got for you tonight. Thanks for listening, and I hope that you'll join me next time for another episode of Thinking and Drinking. The music in this podcast is End of the Street by Kabbalistic Village. Your host's beverage of choice this evening is White Claw Hard Seltzer, because, you know, sometimes basic just hits the spot.